Estland adjournment to allow it time to respond to both Zuma and his co-accused tales of Tail's application for a permanent stay of prosecution. The former president and French aerospace company Tails want charges against them squashed, citing a delay in prosecution that has dragged on for 14 years. In his affidavit, Zuma says he faced public and media prosecution that he says was engineered by the National Prosecuting Authority. Vusi Makosini reports. Former President Zuma is facing multiple charges, including fraud, corruption, racketeering and money laundering. These relate to more than 708 questionable payments to Zuma by his former financial advisor, Shapir Sheikh, that the state alleges were bribes solicited to influence the multi-billion rent arms procurement. Having introduced a new legal team at his last appearance, Zuma's defense, now led by advocate Mike Helens, has filed their application for a permanent stay of prosecution. In his application for the charges against him to be dropped, Zuma says the circumstances of his prosecution reveal political manipulation, interference, undue delay and prosecutorial bias. The former president concludes his affidavit by stating that the delays in his trial have been extremely long. Thales representative Christian Courier in her affidavit has cited unreasonable delays in their prosecution. The company says it has been 14 years since they were originally charged. Thales further says the decision by the NPA to reinstate charges was in respect of Zuma and not the company. This was after the Supreme Court's ruling last year that set aside the decision to withdraw charges against Zuma. Meanwhile, outside court, Zuma supporters are expected to once again gather. A night vigil is also expected to take place this evening. For SABC, I'm Vusma Kusini, Devon. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. Former South African Airways Board Chairperson Cheryl Carolus has admitted to the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture that it is true that the Johannesburg-Mumbai route was making losses but was quite critical to the airline. Carolus was giving her testimony yesterday at the Commission in Johannesburg. Mbali Tetani has more. In her testimony to the Commission, former South African Airways Board Chairperson Cheryl Carolis began by telling Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo that the Johannesburg-Mumbai-India route was very important to SAA as it brought people from the East to West Corridor. The Mumbai route, Chairperson, which is one matter, I'll, I'll just speak to a little bit uh, very briefly, was particularly important for us in that expansion of what we call the East-West Corridor. 
bringing passengers from Mumbai and Beijing were our two key markets where South Africa as a country was growing its own trade and those same people we were trading with were people who were also trading into Africa. And so uh, it was a very important one for us to in fact connect major global flows uh, of trade through Johannesburg as a hub. And that was the significance for us at the time of building up the Mumbai route. Carolis has admitted to the commission that it is true that the Johannesburg-Mumbai route was making losses but was quite critical to the airline. The Mumbai route was quite critical and it is true we were making losses uh, and we were building up that route from Mumbai to Johannesburg. Although those losses during our tenure was greatly curtailed, notwithstanding the fact that we were not in an optimal position. We had four flights, what we call frequency in the jargon, uh, we would have liked to have had seven because we were, you make your money out of business people. But where we made that money out of the Mumbai route was in fact pushing those, where many of those travelers were people who sought to travel into Africa or into Brazil to do business in Brazil or in Chile or in Latin America. Now, anyone in this room who has ever flown on the routes to Africa would know that we were charging an arm and a leg. And the simple, hard-nosed business of supply and demand applies. No one had the connectivity that we had. She further told the Commission that within weeks of Kikaba's appointment to the Public Enterprises Ministry, he prioritized issues concerning the SAA Johannesburg and Mumbai route. Kurulis told the Commission that then-Minister Kigaba set up a meeting with board members where they sat for three hours, waiting for more people to join the meeting. She has told the Commission that she couldn't attend the meeting and asked one of the board members to represent her. Kurulis says she was alerted that the president of Jet Airways attended the meeting and took control of it and interrogated board members about SAA, but Kigaba did not intervene. So when they arrived... Uh there were two gentlemen, apparently, one of whom was the president of Jet Airways uh, and another uh, person from Jet Airways. Uh, and then the minister apparently just took a back seat and the entire discussion was led by the president of Jet Airways, who um, is quite discourteous to Ms. Nzimela and started to interrogate her about why South African Airways was not getting off the route. Uh, and that they should be getting off the route. And this carried on for a while, and Minister Gigaba did, did nothing, said nothing, and eventually uh, Deputy Minister Ben Martins, he was then the Deputy Minister, he in fact um, berated this gentleman and said to him that uh, he had no business coming into our country telling us what to do with our airline. And in fact, clearly, not only that, he was speaking from complete position of ignorance and the sense that we were accountable to him for what our strategies were. But so, so it was the deputy minister, deputy who, minister. who actually Rose intervened, the but yes, the minister Kikaba did not intervene. No, he did absolutely nothing. Mm. And um, in fact, uh, he just let this exchange and in fact he allowed uh, the gentleman from Jet Air to lead the discussion and set the tone and... Uh, interrogate. Uh, and yet the understanding was that this was a meeting wanted by the minister. Yes, mm. yes sir. Carolis also told Justice Zondo reasons for the resignations of many board members. He's writing to parliament 
giving an untruth, as we can see is now corroborated in his own correspondence, that he was lying to the minister, to the, to the Speaker of the House, and being quite reckless about the implications, because if that is a public record that stands, I would have had to declare to every company I serve on that I'm now the director of a delinquent company that has, in fact, violated the law. And that uh, timing of that was going to become true by the 30th of, so it would have been Sunday the 30th of September, and we're now Thursday late afternoon. So I convened a meeting of the board, and I said to them, now I had reached the end of the road. But I thought this was just an utter betrayal <laughs> to make that utterance to, to a lawful body like our parliament for the record. The former SAA board chairperson told the commission that Gigaba was quite central in a lot of wrongdoing at the country's SOEs. It became quite clear what Minister Gigaba had sadly fallen into from his lifestyle. I mean, I don't want to be petty, you know, uh, just all manner of things about I, I got to know him as a young man of exceptional intellect, of absolute moral integrity, modest, humble, and in fact I thought he, I projected him in the ANC as the poster kid of what an ANC Youth League president should look like into the future, where we were not at war, but where we were building a country that he, he was that kind of person. So he's not stupid. So that's what was irrational for me. But I... I must say I've been quite sad at what he has degenerated into because it is quite clear that he has been quite central to a lot of wrongdoing in many of the state-owned enterprises. The commission has since adjourned until Tuesday. Ambali Tetani in Parktown in Johannesburg. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa has left for Argentina, where he will lead a South African delegation to the G20 Leaders' Summit in the capital, Buenos Aires. In a statement ahead of the visit, the presidency said it views the meeting as an opportunity to advance global governance reforms and attract new investment to South Africa. A correspondent, Kate Fisher, reports from Buenos Aires. President Cyril Ramaphosa has a message for the world's leading developed economies meeting at the G20. South Africa is open for business. As the solitary African voice amongst the largely Western powers, President Ramaphosa will have to balance advancing the national interest and the African agenda. But he could struggle to be heard on either, as US-China trade relations look set to eclipse almost everything else. U.S. President Donald Trump was as mercurial as ever as he left Washington for Argentina. I think we're very close to doing something with China, but I don't know that I want to do it because what we have right now is billions and billions of dollars coming into the United States in the form of tariffs or taxes. So I really don't know, but I will tell you that I think China wants to make a deal. I'm open to making a deal. But frankly, I like the deal we have right now. But whatever happens here when Mr. Trump meets Mr. Xi, there's no doubt it will affect every nation, including South Africa. Eli Ratner is executive vice president at the Center for a New American Security. A major economic clash between the United States and China could slow down the global economy, and that, of course, would have ramifications for, for the entire world. 
The trade dispute between the world's two largest economies may dominate this summit. But President Ramaphosa will be holding bilateral meetings of his own. The aim to strengthen ties with other countries and to sell South Africa as an investment destination and a trading partner. Kate Fisher, SABC News, Buenos Aires, Argentina. United States President Donald Trump has labelled his former personal lawyer as weak after Michael Cohen pleaded guilty to making false statements to Congress regarding dealings that the Trump Organization had with Russia. Cohen on Thursday entered a guilty plea in federal court in New York to one count of making false statements during a congressional investigation into whether the Trump campaign worked with Russia to sway the 2016 U.S. election show and bar speech reports. In his guilty plea in Manhattan court, Cohen said that in 2017 he submitted a written statement to Congress saying all efforts relating to a real estate project in Moscow by the Trump organization had ceased by January 2016, by which time the presidential campaign was well underway. Cohen has now admitted that those interactions continued until June of 2016. He also earlier said he had limited contact with Trump concerning the project when in fact it was more extensive. Trump responded before his departure for the G20. Michael Cohn, what he's doing is he was convicted, I guess, uh, you'll have to put it into legal terms, but he was convicted with a fairly long-term sentence on things totally unrelated to the Trump organization, having to do with mortgages and having to do with Uh, cheating the IRS perhaps, a lot of different things. I don't know exactly, but uh, he was convicted of various things unrelated to us. He was given a fairly long uh, jail sentence, and he's a weak person. And by being weak, unlike other people that you watch, uh, he's a weak person, and what he's trying to do is get a reduced sentence. So he's lying about a project that everybody knew about. I mean, we were very open with it. Cohen admitted that he'd been untruthful about his involvement in plans to build the skyscraper in Moscow bearing Trump's name in order to remain loyal and curry favor with the president. Trump was pressed by reporters as to when the proposed deal in Moscow fell apart. I don't know when I decided, but somewhere during the period of time, I was never very enthused, somewhere during the period because I was running for president. My focus was running for president. But I, when I run for president, that doesn't mean I'm not allowed to do business. I was doing a lot of different things when I was running. After I won, obviously, I don't do business when, from January 20th, but more importantly, which is a following year. But I ran a business. In fact, I often joke about the fact that I was the only person that campaigned and simultaneously ran a business. Before taking office in January 2017, Trump had consistently maintained that he had no business relationship with Russia. The ranking Democratic member of the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff, says he believes Cohen was one of many who made false statements to Congress. We need to look into, among other things, the credible allegations that the Russians may have been laundering money through the Trump Organization. Uh, That has been a constant concern of ours, uh, but an issue that the Republicans were unwilling to look into. Uh, That is something that we expect to pursue. But I think um, Michael Cohen's guilty plea also underscores the importance of something else, and that is we believe other witnesses were untruthful before our committee. 
Uh, we want to share those transcripts uh, with Mr. Mueller. Uh, in this case, um, the special counsel only have the advantage of written testimony uh, that the witness made public. Um, we think that the special counsel ought to have the benefit of the transcripts, not only of Mr. Cohen's testimony, but other witnesses like Roger Stone, uh, who may similarly have attempted to mislead the committee. Roger Stone is a close associate of President Trump, while Adam Schiff will become the chair of the House Intelligence Committee when Democrats take over as majority leaders in January. I'm Sherman Bricepees in New York. DRC presidential candidates Felix Tshisekedi and Vital Kamere have joined forces to take on the preferred successor of incumbent Joseph Kabila in the December 23rd election. Tshisekedi, the president of Congo's largest opposition party, the Union for Democracy and Social Progress, said he would select Kamere of the Union for the Congolese nation as his prime minister if he wins the vote. Januel Bamweza reports from Kinshasa. Both Felix Tshisekedi and Vital Kamere traveled to Nairobi in Kenya a few days ago after they have decided to withdraw from the Lamuka coalition deal that appointed Martin Fayulu joint opposition candidate for December presidential election. The two leaders explained their supporters were not satisfied with such a deal and decided to create their own coalition for one of them to carry the candidacy for both the Union for Democracy and Social Progress, well known as UDPS, and the Union for the Congolese Notion UNC. And indeed, the UDPS and the UNC have then concluded a deal according to which Felix Tshisekedi is the joint candidate for December presidential election and Vital Kamere is Tshisekedi's director in charge of the electoral campaign. Both leaders arrived here in Kinshasa on Tuesday for campaigning just a week after the electoral campaign was launched. The coalition joint candidate for president called on opponents to keep the ruling coalition as the only target for opposition to win the upcoming elections. Felix Tshisekedi. We are not opposed to opponents. Our target is people on power that we have been fighting since years just to obtain peaceful and democratic alternation. The only target remains the ruling coalition candidate. There is no time to lose fighting our friends of Lamuka. The coalition both UDPS and UNC created in Nairobi is called the Cap pour le changement, meaning heading for change, and it remains open for other political parties and platforms to join. That's indeed what Felix Tshisekedi's director of the electoral campaign told the media here in Kinshasa. Vital Kamere called on anybody who believes in change to come and join by signing a statement. We have put in place a winning ticket according to people. Anybody who believes we need to change this country with Felix Tshisekedi has to come and join by signing a statement. It's open to everybody. The only thing both leaders have denounced is the Congolese National Police behavior that used the tear gas to disperse supporters as they were taking their two presidents home. There has been several people injured and many lost belongings according to the UDPS leader who believes this is not acceptable during an electoral campaign. Felix Tshisekedi attributes all this to a police he describes as Kabila's political police. Once more, Kabila's political police attacks us and disperses us while we are in campaigning period.
It's unacceptable. Since there is no violence and public order is not in trouble, police has to guide demonstrators. Now there has been injured people and lost belongings just due to this police that's politicized by this regime. By regime. Meanwhile, Felix Chisekedi has said he's busy consulting for him to put in place in few days an electoral campaign team that will take him to the victory. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people. And we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Channel Africa. Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan on Thursday said he was sure majority of the people in India would appreciate the steps taken by the two countries in building the Katapur Sahib Corridor, a long-pending demand of the Sikh community. The corridor will connect Dabar Sahib in Pakistan's Katapur, the final resting place of Sikh faith founder Guru Nanak Dev, with Dera Baba Nanak Shrine in India's Gudaspur district and facilitate visa-free movement of Indian Sikh pilgrims who will have to just obtain a permit to visit Katapur Sahib. Rana Sen has more. The groundbreaking ceremony for the crossing known as the Kartarpur Corridor was hosted by Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan. But Kamal Sewal, a former Indian Foreign Secretary, said it was just a game. What Imran Khan is doing is nothing new. For Pakistan, it's a diplomatic game. They want to put the onus of rejecting talks on India and they want to keep their options open with regard to terrorism in Kashmir. They want talks but without giving up the instrument of terror and when they go to United States, what do they say? That look, India has concerns about terrorism, we are a victim of terrorism ourselves. We are willing to discuss this issue with India but for discussion we need a dialogue. The project was a Khan brainchild. An analyst, Madhav Nalapat, urged India not to get carried away by the former Pakistani cricketer who used the event to again call on India to kickstart suspended peace talks. Pakistan today is in a desperate situation and in that context, if you go to the IMF and the IMF says, look, you're in a state of near war with your neighbor, then so they're not going to be likely to be helpful in, in giving a loan. So it's very important for Pakistan to say that, look, we are peaceful and we want peace. But Pakistani analyst Munir Qadir said the two South Asian neighbors who have fought three wars since the 1947 independence now must fight a common enemy. What I don't want to be challenged is the India-Pak peace process. So until this we establish a forum where India and Pakistan address grievances to one another, unfortunately terror is going to harm. Look at what happened in Abhisar. It's a collective threat. Terrorism needs to be eliminated. And let me tell you, terrorists are very upset. I'm pretty sure they're very upset about Katarpur Corridor. But military strategist Ashish Khanna feared the visa-free corridor could once again see the rise of Sikh separatism which claimed 30,000 lives in India's Punjab state in the late 1980s. 
just a week ago was the attack on the Chinese consulate in Balochistan and it has taken the entire Pakistan government and the Chinese by surprise. We must be very careful that this opening of this corridor does not accelerate what has started to happen again in Punjab. For Newsbreak, this is Rana Sen reporting from New Delhi. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it's one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time. 1000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. Our headlines up next with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. In the headlines, Zimbabwe's main opposition party, MDC, maintains it was cheated of victory in the July 30 election, eight months after long-time leader Robert Mugabe was ousted. The health ministry in the Democratic Republic of Congo says the current outbreak of Ebola in the east of the country is now the second biggest ever recorded, and UNICEF says two-thirds of the children in the Central African Republic, a total of 1.5 million, need humanitarian aid, and the crisis is worsening. Details at 9. South Africa's ruling ANC, UDM and National Freedom Party serving in the Constitutional Review Committee say they are confident that the High Court in Cape Town will rule in their favour of Parliament and the committee today. An order is expected to be granted at 10 o'clock this morning. AfriForum is challenging the committee report which was adopted on the 15th of November. The committee report in dispute recommended that the Section 25 of the Constitution be amended to allow expropriation of land without compensation. Our parliamentary correspondent, Mercedes Percent, reports. The matter between AfriForum and Parliament has been divided into Part A and Part B. In Part A, AfriForum is seeking an urgent interim relief. Part B will deal with the full merits of the case in the form of a judicial review of the committee proceedings. At the centre of yesterday's arguments was the close to 180,000 written submissions. AfriForum says the exclusion of the submissions makes the report flawed and incomplete. The service provider that was appointed by Parliament in June to handle the written submissions is also what AfriForum's legal counsel, Ethian Labuskagni, had concerns about. Where we are dealing with a simple factual issue, and that is, could you exclude, the, uh, could you delegate, firstly, your committee powers to a service provider? And secondly, is the exclusion, whether by the service provider or by the committee, rational? Those are factual issues which do not require an answer to a difficult political question. So 
But Parliament's legal counsel, Tembe Kangukaitobi, wanted the court to dismiss Afri Forum's application. He dismissed the lobby group's claims that Parliament had outsourced its functions to a third party, which is the service provider. He also argued that the exercise done by the committee was not meant to get a quantitative outcome of the process. Nukaitobi further told the court that Afri Forum was preempting a parliamentary process, which has not yet taken a final decision on the committee report. The question as to whether or not there was improper exclusion of submissions is a question no doubt that will be debated within the National Assembly itself. On what African Forum has put up, two parties are concerned explicitly about the so-called exclusion. It's the Freedom Front Plus and the DA. No doubt, when the matter is debated before the National Assembly, the Freedom Front Plus and the DA will raise the question as to the exclusion, the so-called exclusion of submissions. That simply shows that there is entirely no irreparable harm. We have been straight-jacketed, pushed around, and forced to come to court to defend a case in circumstances where it is completely premature. The DA, ACDP, ANC, UDM and NFP attended the court proceedings. However, the DA and ACDP left earlier. UDM member of the committee, Mgeti Sifildani, whose party is in support of amending Section 25 of the Constitution, had this to say about the court proceedings. For starters, uh, we have been vindicated. We have always said that um, we don't think that uh, Afroforum and the other political parties uh, like the DA and Freedom Front Plus, ACTP and INCAT have got any case. And according to what was tabled here in front of the judges, it became very clear that uh, they have got no case. They're just using uh, um, the courts to drive their political uh, agenda, basically. That's what I make of it. And as such, I still believe that come 10 o'clock uh, the judgment that will be handed down by the judges will be in the form of dismissing uh, this whole uh, big fiasco. He was supported by the NFP Sibusi Somnwabe, who's also a committee member in support of amending Section 25. We are very confident that our council presented a concrete argument and explained exactly what we did as committee members in that committee and uh, the weakness of the Afri Forum's argument as well. So we are confident that we'll get a positive judgment. ANC member of the Constitutional Review Committee, Vincent Smith, says he's confident that the court will not hold Parliament from continuing to process the committee report. The debate on the report has been scheduled to take place on the 4th of December in the National Assembly and the NCOP. Smith expressed optimism following the court proceedings. We are very confident that the court will allow Parliament to continue with its business. We are hopeful that that will be the case, that the ruling will be that Parliament will continue with its business and uh, anything else can, can, can be dealt with by the lawyers. But uh, we, we think that, that there's sufficient argument to be made that Parliament should be able to continue with its business. And there's no urgency in terms of interdicting the work of Parliament. Afri Forum lawyer Velispis described the arguments by the two legal counsels as robust, but did not want to preempt whether the court order could possibly go in Afri Forum's favor. One can never preempt what the court will do. The judges indicated that they will hand down an order tomorrow and then give their reasons later on. So whatever the order will be is, is not clear to us. Uh, we will have to wait the time out and see tomorrow. We do have confidence in the courts and we do have confidence in the judges. There was a robust exchange of ideas, very good 
legal arguments were ventilated today. And yeah, we'll, um, we'll deal with whatever comes to us. Committee co-chairpersons Lewis Nzimande and Stan Mayila, who were also at court, expressed different views about the court order expectations. That's what we want, to debate the report. That's what is scheduled. It's before parliament, so what can only stop us is a court, is a court order, nothing else. No, I'm quite hopeful. I'm quite hopeful. Uh, the way I saw the processes, I'm really hopeful, but I'm reading a very small room for disappointment. You can't preempt a judgment. Uh, you have to give the courts their space to do their, their work. Nzimande has also confirmed that the NCOP has also scheduled the committee report for debate on the same day when the National Assembly will be debating it on Tuesday next week. And that report by our parliamentary correspondent, Mercedes Percent in Cape Town. We don't pay attention to what happens to our electronics after we've finished using them. Whether they break or whether you simply want to upgrade to the latest model, these old products are known as electronic waste or e-waste. Each year, up to 50 million tons of e-waste is produced worldwide. A lot of it is shipped to is shipped out to small countries like Togo, one of the poorest in West Africa. The sheer volume is putting a strain on the country but is determined to try and make the most out of its digital legacy as the BBC's Waihiga Mwaura reports. A child's toy from an unlikely source, made from other people's unwanted waste. This is plastic. So we print it with the 3D printer. Okay, and, and you made this 3D printer? Yeah, yeah, we made a 3D printer from e-waste material. So we recycle uh, old printers, conventional printers, and we take parts that we use to make the frame. I'm in the workshop of Uzia Folibebe, one of a growing number of young entrepreneurs who sees the potential of e-waste as an emerging business in Togo. On the table in front of me is his creation, a robot spider. Uzia's vision is to empower children through science. Our hope is that we, we produce and sell the, the science sets that will help students and mostly kids and girls be interested in science and solve the problem we have in our community. It's estimated nearly half a million tons of used electrical goods arrive at the port of Lome every year, from old mobile phones and laptops through to TVs and generators. Walking through a market next to the port of Lome, I'm surrounded by row upon row of open shipping containers. Inside them are second-hand cars filled with used electrical goods. But we've been told that 80% of imports sold here no longer work. Despite international conventions that ban the movement of non-working electronics, they're shipped from the West and find their way to these shores. We've asked one of the market traders where the products had come from. Where are the TVs from? Uh-huh. Germany and Holland. Oh, Germany, Germany and Holland. Wow. How many do you have? 130. 130 TVs. If these electronic goods can't be fixed, they likely end up in landfill sites around the capital. Looking through the rubbish in one of them, I came across the cover of a slide projector, which says it was made in Western Germany. 
Almost three decades after the fall of the Berlin Wall, this has ended up here. A sobering example of how Togo is becoming a dumping ground for the world's unwanted e-waste. For those dismantling discarded electronics come serious risks. Toxic materials like mercury and lead are contained within them. We store old TV tubes here, which are particularly toxic, and pay for it to be transported to Belgium to be safely recycled. Ave Chamsi depends on discarded technology for his e-waste recycling business. His workers wear gloves and face masks to minimize their exposure. But Hervé says Togo lacks the infrastructure to allow all the waste to flood in. There are lots of people who make a living from the fact that e-waste is coming into the country and regulating it would reduce the amount of money that can be made. But a lot of the waste which arrives here is dangerous, so we should really think about the impact it could have on our environment. Initiatives that could help Togo better handle the waste are beginning to spring up. Wolab is a tech startup in Lome which focuses on recycling. In a small classroom, children as young as 10 years old learn ways to reuse and repurpose old electronics safely. In a country with limited job opportunities, there's huge potential for this industry. Far from becoming the dump site of the digital age, Togo could provide the answers for a sustainable technological future. That report by the BBC's Waihiga Mwaira in Lome. Abari, etise, mache, mingabu, baoni, kedu, mbote, ndemne, bonsoir. Join me, Richard Mwamba, for a music show on Channel Africa called Africa in Song every Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Africa in Song, Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. For those who sang Do Re Mi Fa So, That's why I feel so honored honoring Mamususub. This year, 2018, marks a hundred years of the birth of Nonzigelelo Albertina Sisulu, who died in June 2011. Nonzigelelo Albertina Sisulu, a humble and yet gallant epitome of South African people's steadfast struggle for human rights and freedom against apartheid racism and all forms of oppression in the entire world. Join Channel Africa, the South African nation and progressive mankind across the world in celebration of a centenary of a gallant freedom fighter and a mother of the South African nation. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. It's 8.45 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our economics update up next with Tabi Solohoko.
Good morning. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa is among the world leaders that have started to arrive in Buenos Aires for the G20 summit, which is facing divisions over trade, climate change and global security. The run-up to the summit has been marked by discord among the world's major powers. This relates to the trade war between the U.S. and China and Russia's seizure last Sunday of Ukrainian ships and sailors near Crimea which Russia annexed in 2014. Former South African Airways board chairperson Cheryl Carolis says when Malusi Kikaba was a public enterprises minister, he was obsessed with SAA's Johannesburg-Mumbai route, which the Gupta-linked India's Jet Airways was determined to take over. Carolis was testifying before the Commission of Inquiry into state capture in Johannesburg on Thursday. She served as SAA board chairperson from 2009 until 2012. Carolis says Kikaba once set up a meeting with SAA board members, which she didn't attend. She says the president of Jet Airways attended the meeting and interrogated board members, but Kigaba did not intervene. I found it most peculiar that the minister, with no briefing of us, like uh, calling me, the, the chairperson and the CEO, to yet another meeting without telling us that is this, or, or, but even the very thought that he would be so persistent to help them out uh, when he never showed the same, uh, he never called us to say, right, uh, SAA, tell me what can I do to help you on the Mumbai route. But he was clearly talking to Jet Airways how he can help them to find us on the Mumbai route. Zambia's Centre for Trade Policy and Development says that the launch of Zambia's Airways, planned for next year April, should be shelved until the country's debt position improves to avoid accumulating more costs. The government plans to spend 30 million US dollars as initial investment, while the full implementation of the project will require 100 million dollars. The Centre for Trade Policy and Development researcher Bright Chizonde has appealed to government to re-evaluate the cost of implications of relaunching Zambia Airways since the country's debt situation would deteriorate due to the bailout payment required to keep the national airline operational until it breaks even. The World Trade Organization says it's experiencing its worst crisis since its inception. A WTO is locked in conflict with U.S. President Donald Trump, who has blocked its dispute settlement procedures and is threatening to pull the U.S. out altogether. The BBC's Daniel Gallus reports. The Director General of the World Trade Organization told the BBC that basic principles of cooperation are under threat by the current trade wars between China and the U.S. Roberto Azevedo said this is the worst crisis in the international trading system since the current model of disputes was created in 1947. He also urged both countries to change their tone of threats, accusations and finger-pointing to a more constructive dialogue. U.S. and Chinese leaders Donald Trump and Xi Jinping are due to meet in Buenos Aires on Saturday after the G20 summit. 
Lesotho's Prime Minister Tom Tabane has ordered all civil servants to declare their assets to end corruption. Tabane said this at the recently held a public day that was celebrated in the capital Maseru. The day, which was marked by live musical performances by some of the country's top artists, is held to celebrate the value and virtue of service to the community. The celebrations were under the theme Combating Corruption in Government Institutions in order to achieve 2063 Millennium Goals. The US dollar is trading at 1033 Botswana Pula. It's at 11.91 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, the US dollar is trading at 385 Brazilian Real, at 66.51 Russian Ruble, and at 69.73 Indian Rupee. A six ninety three Chinese yuan and a thirteen sixty eight dollars to the South African rand. It's also trading at uh, seventy eight pence to the British pound and at eighty seven cents to the euro. Gold is trading at one thousand two twenty four dollars. Platinum eight fifteen dollars pounds. The price of Brent crude oil is at fifty nine dollars eighty four cents a barrel. From an African perspective. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In this hour, we begin with football news. Cameroon national women's football side striker Nchut Ajara is confident that they can beat Mali this afternoon despite having lost a tough semi-final to Nigerian penalties in Accra before having to travel to Cape Coast. Cameroon faced Mali in the third-place playoff match where the winners will also secure a place at France 2019. Uh, we know it's not easy for us, but uh, we work for that. So it's not a problem we're going to play game Mali. We know it's not going to be easy for us, but we're going to do it well because we need to qualify for the World Cup. So it's only the last thing we have to do now, and we're going to give all our best to do it. In collaboration with the Dutch government, KNVB Legends, the Nelson Mandela Foundation and SAFA, this week the Mandela Legacy 100 project continued its work in developing football coaches in South Africa. Last year, the party signed an MOU to train 100 coaches in memory of Mandela's 100th birthday anniversary. And this has been carried though, uh, rather through as the KNVB Legends World Coaches, led by former Mamelodi Sundowns coach and Dutch legend Johan Niskens, held more courses throughout South Africa. Speaking at the reception to commemorate the life of Mandela, Niskens says it was great to return to South Africa and see the progress that coaches are making in the country. Yeah, uh, great, because uh, before I came here, I was last week uh, from Thursday till Sunday, I was in uh, Johannesburg. We gave there about uh, three uh, clinics, also with uh, two of them were for uh, women. And we had uh, the first one, we had 30, and in the third one, we had also around 28. So that was great. And I must say also uh, what we have seen, that also these girls have improved in, uh, in, in compare with last year. 
Former Bafana Bafana Captain Aaron Mugwena says he's proud to be involved with the Mandela Legacy 100 campaign by the Dutch government and the KNVB that has trained 100 coaches in memory of Mandela. Mugwena says it is great to see South African men and women taking on the challenge of coaching and says he's delighted for Desiree Ellis who has led Banyana Banyana for their first ever World Cup qualification. You know, it's, it's, it's fantastic to have men and women and men and women in coaching as well. Look at Desiree, exactly what you're saying. Doing fantastic work at um, at African Cup of Nations. Uh, Banyana Banyana have qualified for the World Cup now. Um, so that actually, it uh, it puts Bafana Bafana in, uh, in a serious pressure. I mean, if they can do it, yeah, uh, it's, it's great. Now it's, uh, it's up to the boys. International Olympic Committee President Thomas Bach opened the first day of the IOC's executive board meeting in Tokyo this morning. Bach and Japanese Olympic Committee President Tsunegazu Takeda delivered brief comments to the assembled board before the start of the two-day meeting. Today there is due to be a report delivered by the World Anti-Doping Agency as well as a progress report on preparations for the Beijing 2022 Winter Games. The future of boxing as an Olympic sport is also likely to be on the agenda following the controversial election of Uzbek businessman Gafur Rahimov as the head of Boxing's International Federation, Aiba. Finally, golf news. The opening round of the Mauritius Open ended with Francis Victor Perez and India's S. Chikarangapa sharing the lead after they both signed for 8 under 64 at Four Seasons Golf Club at Anahita. While Chikarangapa's round was bogey free and with 8 bogeys and birdies, Perez was a little more eventful as he made 9 birdies, which were accompanied by a single bogey in hot conditions in Anahita. The highest placing South African after the first round was Jakob van Sale, who carried a flawless 7 under 65 to take a share of the third spot. He made 3 birdies on the front 9 to 10 in 31. A par and a birdie on the 10th and 11th were followed by 5 straight pars before he closed his round with a birdie and an eagle. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. South Africa's former president Jacob Zuma returns to court to face corruption charges. And the DRC presidential candidates Felix Chisakedi and Vital Kamere join forces. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today and for the week. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuto Ramagaza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Wiseman Mangrele and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-63-003327 or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Debunge featuring Tiwa Savage with a song titled Shake It.
Marie Rawa, Rawa. 